0: Welcome back to In the Labyrinth of Death. My name is Finn.
1: And I'm Marina.
0: This week we're going to be talking about bridge collapses.
1: And this is one of those things that I kind of always think about when we're on one of those really big bridges that goes over the water. So when we're going down to the Outer Banks, which is where we go just to go to the beach in the summer sometimes, there's a few different like big bridges we drive over and I always think about it like we're loaded to the gills with luggage. We're all buckled in. I've even got the dogs buckled in the back. If this thing, like, collapses completely, what the fuck are we going to do? We're going to tumble into, like, the sound, or maybe even, like, into the bay. It could be really fucking bad, so I just always think about it. But before we get into it, remember, as always, we're not experts at all of any kind. We just really don't want to die, and we like researching and talking about it. Please listen to the full disclaimer at the end of the episode, and don't sue us. We're just two regular people. My opening story this week is a fairly recent one. We were both kids when it happened, so I didn't really learn about it until just now, but it's a really crazy case, and it's also, like, it's just insane how commonplace it felt. Like, people were just commuting, and then something tragic happened, so let's get into it. It was August 1st, 2007, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The I-35 West was a busy highway with over 140,000 cars passing over the Mississippi River Bridge every single fucking day. The bridge was under construction at this time for minor repairs and repaving, In fact, only four of the eight lanes were actually open for traffic, and there were numerous construction workers on the bridge. Our story starts during the rush hour at 6.05pm, when the central portion of the bridge suddenly gave out. You can actually see the bridge collapse online in like a freeze frame animation from a nearby security camera. It's pretty fucking sudden and drastic. The middle part just suddenly falls, and the sections directly attached to it fall as well.
0: So when you say that it falls, are you talking about like it makes a V shape in the middle or?
1: No, imagine like you're holding like a fucking book in your hands and you take your hands away and the book just falls straight down. Oh, uh, okay. It didn't even like buckle in the middle and do a V. It just fucking dropped straight. So the bridge chunks plummet, like we were just talking about, it broke up. The bridge chunks plummet 60 to 115 feet into the river and the riverbanks below. And so all told, there were 111 cars on the bridge and 18 construction workers. And you can't see it in that kind of like stop action video that you can see online, but survivors who were there said it was like the cars were all on like a sheet, like imagine a blanket on a bed with toy cars on it, and then shake it. So they kind of went up in the air a little bit before they plummeted down.
0: So what caused this to happen? When when I hear people say something looks like it was shaken, I think of like an earthquake. Was that what caused this whole scenario?
1: It was not. It was years of disrepair. And I'll talk a little bit more about it later. But there was no like environmental thing that happened. It was just the circumstances, particularly of the construction and just years and years of disrepair. A survivor that day named Lindsay Waltz said, quote, I got to the middle of the bridge when it actually collapsed. I heard a big clank is what I call it, which I think was probably a beam snapping and it was pretty much immediate that my car started to free-fall into the river. Lindsay struggled to get her vehicle out as it rapidly filled with water, saying, I stayed conscious the whole time. My car immediately filled with water, so I had to find my way out through the murky water and everything was closed up. All the windows were still intact that I had felt, and it really was some kind of miracle, I guess, that something gave way. She managed to free herself and swim to the surface, where a construction worker helped her onto a nearby piece of concrete. She survived, but she had a broken back and extreme PTSD after the event.
0: I don't even know how you can swim in basically unvisible or like no visibility water and you also have a broken back. That's insane to me. She must have had insane adrenaline going through her.
1: Yeah, she even said that that like she didn't actually start feeling the pain until she was sitting on the concrete afterwards because her brain was straight adrenaline, like straight survival mode. Now, folks who didn't plummet into the water were still at risk of being killed in a vehicle collision. On the remaining parts of the bridge. A man named Tim Mills was driving a lumber truck on the bridge during the collapse. Now, he was mostly able to slow his vehicle down because he saw what was happening up ahead, but then he was hit by semi-tractor trailer and the numerous other cars over and over as they continued up the bridge. He described it as, quote, Once people topped that hill, we were blind to them. They were coming over there 60 miles an hour. I got hit I don't know how many times. I couldn't tell you. The emergency response to the disaster that day was super impressive. Six minutes after the collapse, the Minneapolis Fire Department arrived and began rescuing and triaging victims. In only 81 minutes, they had gotten 145 people triaged and sent to various local hospitals. That's like insanely fast given the chaos that must have been there at the scene. All the victims who were stranded on the remaining portions of the bridge that were still standing were also rescued within three hours. I don't know if you guys have seen these photos or if you lived through seeing this like live on the news, but the photos of where people were standing is just crazy. It looks like something out of a movie like 2012. Picture like huge sections of asphalt broken apart from each other and at different levels and different angles. It just, it literally looks like a movie. It's insane. Tragically, not everyone survived the collapse and the following day rescue operations turned to retrieval operations. It would end up taking three weeks to retrieve all the bodies from the water and the debris. And many of the people who died were trapped in that debris. Thirteen people were killed as a direct result of the crash. 145 people were injured, some of them severely. So this, of course, begs the question, why did the bridge fall? So it started with the bridge being rated structurally deficient, which we're going to talk about more in the episode later. But it was also labeled as failure critical, which means that the whole bridge could collapse if one critical component failed. I know this sounds really bad, but unfortunately, it's not actually that crazy. At the time, Minnesota actually had fairly well-ranked bridges compared to other states. It's just that the prevalence of structurally deficient or even worse bridges is higher than you'd expect pretty much everywhere. One thing you can do if you're curious is check with your local department of transportation. They have to rate the safety of bridges on a regular basis. In the U.S., it's federally mandated. I think they get checked like every two years, but a lot of states will actually check them every year. But the problem is even if they're checking them, they may not be able to fix them as quickly as you or they would like. So a deficient rating doesn't mean that it's in imminent danger of collapsing. It's just that I personally would not feel safe driving over something every day that's been deemed structurally deficient. According to a 2007 Newsweek article, and I got different numbers from other sources, but we'll go with this one, at the time, 27% of all bridges were classified as structurally deficient. And it's been a long time since then, but I wouldn't be surprised if the numbers are similar now. Also, just one interesting tidbit. Also at the time, apparently the worst bridges in the United States were actually in in D.C., like in the capital, where about 60% of bridges were determined to be structurally deficient at the time. But anyway, back to the I-35 West Bridge collapse. They had to do some intense investigations into the failure to figure out what exactly went wrong. According to the National Board of Transportation, quote, and this is long, so bear with me, it was the inadequate load capacity due to a design error of the gusset plates at the U10 nodes, which failed under a combination of one, substantial increases in the weight of the bridge, which resulted from previous bridge modifications, and two, the traffic and concentrated construction loads on the bridge on the day of the collapse. End quote. So let's break that down a little bit. Basically, if you imagine some beams that are all coming together at like a junction underneath the bridge, These gusset plates that they're talking about are kind of stuck on either side of them. And then they've got like big bolts going through them. And they'd actually seen in years previously that the gussets were bent, which they shouldn't have been. But apparently, because the joints were considered like infallible, because they're so much stronger than the actual like structural beams on the bridge itself, they thought that it may have been an error when it was actually installed. But it turns out it was actually a weak point on the bridge. And it's really unfortunate because in just bad luck, so all the traffic was condensed down to four of the eight lanes, so everybody's already concentrated in one area. And then right above those broken gussets, the U-10 nodes on the bridge, that's where all the tons and tons of construction equipment was for the repaving. So it was just like a fucking perfect storm of bad shit happening that caused the bridge to collapse that day. Luckily, something good did come out of this, and Minnesota undertook a lengthy and undoubtedly expensive endeavor to replace or repair all other structurally deficient bridges by 2018. I didn't find an article, I just couldn't find one, about whether they succeeded or not, but I found one in 2016 or 2017 that they were like almost completely done with it. So you guys should feel pretty safe about bridges in Minnesota right now.
0: So you had said that there was originally a rating of quote-unquote structurally deficient, and that was part of some other scale that people use to grade how good or bad certain bridges or maybe other structures are. Could you elaborate on whether or not there's more of that scale, like maybe what a good bridge should be rated versus what an even worse bridge should be rated as?
1: There's two main ways of doing it. When people are talking about structural deficiency, the big one is basically imagine scoring things from zero to nine. So nine's what you want. That's like it's perfect, it's excellent, and zero means it fucking failed. It's like it's really bad. So our scale zero to nine. So when they're scoring bridges, there's a few different parts of the bridge that they look at one is the deck so that's what you're actually driving on one is the superstructure so basically what's immediately underneath the part that you're driving on and then the substructure which is foundation supporting post all that stuff so there's three parts that they're looking at and each one is graded individually from 0 to 9 if any one of those are rated 4 or less it's determined to be structurally deficient so i don't know if there's actually like grades of the term structurally deficient it's just that if it hits below that numeric category That's what it becomes. Now, there's a few other terms that are interesting here. One is functionally obsolete. So that just means that when they're grading the bridge, it was built to a standard that is no longer the current standard. But that doesn't mean the bridge is unsafe. It just means that the way the bridge was built is not how we build bridges now. Like, I'm sure like ancient Roman bridges would have the same thing, but they might still be standing. So one other thing that's interesting that we also talked about was failure critical. So failure critical means that it's, again, not inherently unsafe at the moment, but that one part of this bridge could collapse, it could fail, and then the whole bridge could fucking come down. So being structurally deficient and failure critical is not a great place for a bridge to be in.
0: I feel like there's not very many bridge collapses that happen, at least in the US very often, because you don't really read about it too much. Maybe they're like singular events that happen here and there. But I would venture to guess that It's fewer than 100 every single year, if not half of that.
1: I think it's difficult to say. I found one study saying that every single year in the U.S., there are between 88 and 222 with an expected value of like 123 or something. Bridge collapses every year. That does seem pretty high, and I'm not sure what they're classifying as a bridge. It could be like a pedestrian walkway, and I'm just not really sure. But it does not happen an insane amount. But it does happen. And it happens more often in areas where bridges are exposed to extreme weather. So imagine like extreme cold weather, because you're gonna get wear and tear from the freeze thaw process every year, and that's gonna lead to structural deficiencies. Other cold weather issue could be like salt that's used to de-ice the bridges, and then on the other hand, extreme heat in the summer, and then floods that can actually erode the base of bridges, those are all gonna like possibly contribute to collapses. And like we were talking about earlier. It's estimated that there are 43,000 bridges in the U.S. alone that are structurally deficient, and there are 167 million trips taken across those bridges every single fucking day. Going back in time to, like, historical bridge collapses, though, there have been some absolutely insane ones. Some of them were, like, involving Napoleon's troops, like, all kinds of crazy ones, but there's one that I really wanted to share because the premise of it is just kind of out there. So it was May 2nd, 1948, in the city of Great Yarmouth, England. William Cook's Circus had just come into the town and everybody was excited for the opening act. A clown named Arthur Nelson was going to ride in a wash tub drawn by four geese down the river. So imagine like a clown in what I assume is some kind of like a bucket with four geese attached to it going just down the river. It's like a really crazy image and I probably would have lined up to see it too. So a whole bunch of people, literally thousands, mostly children, lined up on the river bank and also on a suspension bridge that spanned the river. As the clown Arthur Nelson passed under the bridge, everyone rushed from one side of the bridge to the other to see him. The sudden shift in weight snapped the suspension chains and the bridge like completely rotated vertical and it actually crushed a bunch of kids to death against the parapet railing before everything eventually plummeted into the river. All told, 59 children and 20 adults were killed.
0: So did they ever explain why that suspension bridge failed? Like, I think you said the chains snapped. Like, why did that happen?
1: So I'm not sure what kind of state the bridge was in. This was, like, 1948. So it could have been built, like, a long time before 1948. It was being suspended by chains. Everybody was on one side of the bridge, like, watching the clown in the wash basin approach. Then he went under the bridge, and they all en masse, like, it was probably overweighted all en masse shifted the weight to the other side of the bridge. And that quick weight shift, probably overweight, snapped the chain. And that's what caused it to fall.
0: So knowing that this particular suspension bridge may have just been too old and there wasn't enough maintenance done on it, is there any way that maybe for a non-civil engineer or somebody who is familiar with bridge construction, for the normal people out there, how can you tell whether a bridge is at risk for collapsing besides just knowing that it's like a thousand years old?
1: Honestly, I don't think that you can tell. I don't think that there's a way that you and I, fucking lay people, not civil or structural engineers, none of that. I don't think that we can look at a bridge and say that it is safe or that it is unsafe. I think you just have to trust that when things are deemed in need of repair, that they are actually repaired. Because you're really just, there's no way that you can possibly know. You can't even like be on a bridge and feel it and be like, yeah, this feels good or this feels bad. Because Things like suspension bridges will move in the wind. That's how they're built. And I know when we were in college, there was this bridge that I always thought it was stupid, but people would like get on the bridge in like large masses and jump on it to feel it shake. And that bridge has not yet collapsed. So movement in bridges, appearance of the bridge, you just can't fucking tell if it's safe or not. That being said, there are ways that you can prepare yourself and maybe also just avoid causing it in the first place. I found one crazy story I'm going to talk about now. So if you happen to be a trucker driving like a large vehicle, you probably already know this, but just in case, sometimes the upper truss spans on bridges are arches. So imagine like that big thing spanning the bridge, like on top. They're an arch rather than being straight across. I found an article about an incident involving a large truck in 2013 in Washington state. The truck was slightly too far in the right lane, like just a little bit. And because of that, he was just a little bit too tall as it curved down, and he hit the curved truss span, causing the whole section of the bridge to collapse because it was structurally important. The truck actually made it across the bridge, but behind the truck, there was another truck and a car that both fell into the river below. Luckily, nobody died that day, which is just insane and extremely lucky. But I guess if you're a truck driver, just be super careful if you see curved trusses and you're in a tall truck because that height may not be the same at the edge as it is in the center. And if you're in a car and you see a truck like that, that's kind of like veering towards the edge and maybe might not make it towards like the curve of that truss, just be aware of your surroundings and maybe give them a little more space in case you have to stop. I found something else interesting about bridges that are at risk for boat collisions. So some of these newer bridges actually have hydraulic systems that will let them know If there's been a boat collision, basically a boat takes out part of a bridge, the bridge itself will know and then it can actually lower like the gate arms to keep you off the bridge. So if you see that happening, it might be for a normal reason or it might be because a boat just like collided with the bridge. So if you see them going down the arms, take them seriously. Don't try to race across the bridge before the arm gets down because you might be like racing into a void that was created by a boat. There's one last situational awareness thing that I want to bring up, and that's just being aware of the general weather situation. Like, Have there been floods that may have like eroded out the bottom of it? Or if there's been an earthquake, how sure are you that the bridge is still safe? Now, if you're out on the west coast of the US where there are lots of earthquakes, you're almost guaranteed to be safe on that bridge because they're built to withstand earthquakes. But if you're in a part of the world where maybe there's fewer earthquakes, I'd be more hesitant during or after an earthquake. If they're just not accustomed to it, because the bridge may not have been built to that standard. Now let's talk about some actual precautions that you can take. And this one is actually, like, for real the most important. Keep everybody buckled in the fucking car, including your pets, even though I know it's a hassle and they may not like it. Now this is important because it means you're less likely to be knocked unconscious when you're flung around during the fall as a bridge collapses or on impact. And if you fall into the water, you can't get yourself, your family, or your pets out of the vehicle if you're unconscious. And even if you're alone, you can't swim to the surface of the water either. So you're going to be dead in like a few fucking minutes. Now, if you're not on the bridge already, obviously don't proceed if you see it collapsing. Like that's obvious. But if you're already on the bridge, you might be fucked or there might be something you can do. If you're crashing into something hard below like concrete, like you're on an overpass crashing into the interstate or just like the ground or like a mountain pass or something. That's just going to be fucking luck. Hope you're buckled in. Hope people can rescue you. And it's just really luck how you land if more cars or debris land on top of you. There's not much you can do in that situation other than if you're still conscious, try to get yourself out of it in case your car catches on fire. Now, if you're crashing into water, imagine like a bridge over water that collapses. There is more that you can do in that situation. So we're going to spend a little bit more time talking about that. Now, the most important thing you can do as you hit the water, apart from your safety belt, is to not panic. And sometimes visualizing something bad happening before it happens can actually help like stave off that panic. So understand that when your car plummets, you're going to nosedive. And that's because the engine of your car is the heaviest part. So even if like you think that you could stop the car or something, if you start going down, it's fucking nose first, engine first. And if you're smart enough to have your safety belt on, depending on how quickly you plunge in and with like how much force, you might have three to five minutes to get out of the vehicle if you're lucky. Now the folks on the I-35 West, that woman who survived, she said it basically happened instantly because she fell 60 fucking feet into the water. So she's like fully submerged immediately. If you're only falling 10 or 15 feet, you're going to have more time to get out because you're not falling and being pushed as far into the water. So what you want to do, and this is really important, Do not immediately remove your seatbelt. Even if you've hit the water and water starts coming in, you want to make sure you're like being super aware because it's possible more cars are going to continue falling on top of you or there's going to be debris falling on top of you. So you don't want to undo your seatbelt until you know you're done being impacted by other things. So if you're not fully submerged yet, take deep breaths. It's going to give you more oxygen and also help keep you calm. And when it's safe, move quickly. Get yourself and everybody else unbuckled, including your pets, before you open that window or that door. Because remember, when you open the window or the door, water's going to fucking rush in, so you got to be ready to go, like, as a whole group. And if you're not fully submerged under the water, you can just roll down your windows and get out that way. That's actually recommended, so don't try to open your fucking door. If you can still roll your window down and get out that way, that's what you should do. Now, if you are fully submerged and water's coming into the car... And you're trying to open the door, you're going to have to wait for the water pressure to equalize with the water pressure outside of the car on the inside of the car. So I said that kind of a weird way. So imagine you're sitting in the cabin of your car. You're under the water, your cabin's slowly filling up with water, and on the outside there's a whole wall of water. You're not going to be able to open your door into that wall of water until your cabin is completely full of water because the pressure on the outside is different from the pressure on the inside of your car. So if you are unable to get your windows down for whatever reason and you have to wait for the door, it's going to be a long fucking time and you're going to not have any more air in that car. But at that moment, as soon as there's no more air in the car, you can open the door as if you were like out on land.
0: To me, that sounds like you're setting yourself up almost to fail though because if you're lucky enough to have landed in your car and it is not completely submerged in water, then it sounds like you're trying to wait for it to fill up before you even make an attempt to break out.
1: Yeah, that's why they recommend the window instead of the door. So roll the window down, go out the window if you're not fully submerged. If you are fully submerged and you've gotten everybody out of their safety belts and everyone's ready to go, bust out of the window, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. If for whatever reason you can't get out of the window because you can't lower it or you can't break it, at that point you're going to have to go out the door. So at that point, door is the last resort and you have to wait until you can actually like physically open it. One more note here, if you're in the front of the car like you're the driver or you're the passenger, you're probably not going to be able to open the door as soon as the water has reached the ceiling where you're sitting. And again, this is because your car went in nose first, so the butt of the car is up in the air, or like higher in the water, so the last air bubble in that car is going to be in the back seat, and you have to wait for that whole part to equalize before you're able to open the door. If you have kids or pets in the back seat, you'll need to have moved back there anyway to unbuckle them. So either move back there if you don't have kids or pets, or if you do, get back there, get them out, and then stay in the fucking back. It's going to give you a little bit more air, and that gap of time between running out of air and being able to open up the door is going to be smaller and give you a better chance of survival.
0: I noticed this whole time you were assuming that the engine's going to be in the front, so you're going to nosedive into the water first. What changes if you have like a sports car where you have the engine in the middle of the car, or maybe in the back of the car? Does that change how you land, or maybe are you still gonna nosedive anyways?
1: Great fucking question. I don't know. I think it would depend on the weight distribution of the car. I mean, if you somehow, like if I know a lot of Teslas have like batteries on the bottom, I don't know what would happen with them. They might belly flop, or if they were going with enough forward momentum, they might still nosedive. They could even flip in the air. I have no idea what would happen. I do know that if your car does flip on the way down and you're upside down in the water, it's not fucking good. It's actually pretty unsurvivable. I'm going to talk about it more later in the media section, but there's a Mythbusters episode about like getting out of a car. And it seemed like it was possible to get out of a car through the door if it was upright. So like we were talking, just nose diving in. They did a similar experiment where the car was like belly up and he was not able to get out of the car, even knowing what was going to happen to him without using the supplemental oxygen.
0: Is that because you are so disoriented that you can't do it? Or is there like an actual other physical phenomenon happening that's preventing someone from getting out and surviving?
1: I think it's the disorientation and the car also flipped over a few other times. Once it was belly up, just because it wasn't like fully stabilized in the water in that position, it actually righted itself and then flipped itself back again. So you're spending all that time disoriented, flipping orientation and all that stuff. And you don't have a lot of time as the water's coming in. So he was not able to actually get out of the car in time. And if he hadn't had supplemental oxygen, and had been real, then he would have fucking died. So speaking of windows, your car battery is probably going to work for a few minutes underwater, shockingly. So you can try doing that to get your windows down. But if you can't, you're going to need to try busting through a window first. Now, remember, you're not going to be able to punch or kick your way out of the window. It might seem like you can, but you almost certainly will not be able to you need to find something sharp that's going to exert a lot of force in a small, concentrated area. If you don't have a tool for it, you can use your elbow in the corner of the window, but you're going to have to hit it really fucking hard, like really fucking hard. So they make these little hammer things that are specifically designed for this. We have them in our car consoles in case we ever need them. They actually, like, it's like a two-parter where, like, the top is the hammer head with, like, a little pointed hammer, and the bottom is, like, a little, like, razor you can use to cut safety belts if like the release mechanism is not working. So you want to use that hammer on the side windows because if you're lucky they're tempered glass, which means when you hit them with the hammer they're just going to straight up shatter into a million pieces and just disappear. Use them on the side windows and not the front or rear windshields, even though they're bigger and it'd be easier to get out that way, because the front and rear windows are going to actually be laminated. Which means that, you know, when you get, like a, like, a rock hits your fucking windshield and it does the spiderweb thing instead of shattering? That's because they're laminated. And so when you hit it with the hammer, it's going to do the same thing. Where it's going to stay in one sheet and it's not going to actually shatter so you won't be able to get out. Now, if you're in an SUV, it's possible that even your side windows are laminated. So it's going to be, like, really fucking hard to get out. If you find that your side windows are spiderwebbing like the front would and they're not shattering, after you've hit it, you're going to need to try to actually kick that window out. Otherwise, you're going to be trapped in the car and just fucking die.
0: As an aside, I just want to say, due to that phenomenon of if your windows are rolled up and you're submerged underwater, the actual force it will take you to break the window or even open the door is much higher than it normally would be because obviously the water is pressing upon the outside of the car. So... It's already not really easy to break car windows above water, but underwater, I don't even know if anybody can do that without having a tool, I should say. I would say that if your windows are rolled up and you don't have an easily accessible hammer or spring loaded kind of thing, you're just basically fucked.
1: Yeah, I don't think I could accept that. that people can do crazy fucking things on adrenaline, so I don't know that it's impossible, but it's pretty unlikely. If you're like punching the middle of the window, it's not going to fucking happen. You want to go for the weak points, which are going to be like the corners of it and go after it with like your fucking elbow. I don't know, maybe a fucking key. I don't know. Like something that you can exert like a lot of like really sharp force in a very small area.
0: But it seems to me like you have to do that after not being so disoriented, not being knocked unconscious, actively unbuckling yourself. Like there's so many perfect storm set of things that have to be in place for you to even be in a position to say, now I'm going to break a fucking window. Like It's just so unlikely that you will survive this like all the other above water bridge collapses.
1: Yeah, I think it does have to be a perfect storm of survival in that case. Now, if you haven't fallen very far and your car is not completely submerged to begin with, then you have some more time to play with. You might have that three to five minutes before your car goes completely under. In that case, you probably can get everybody unbuckled and bust out the window if for some reason you can't lower it normally. Like, you have more time in that scenario. The fact that anyone survived that I-35 West Minnesota bridge collapse after falling 60 feet into the water and, like, immediately being, like, fully underneath, because you can't fucking see under the water. It's fucking murky. You don't have goggles on. Like, the fact that people survived that just, it blows my fucking mind. I have two more super quick things to say about car windows and breaking out of them. In terms of having tempered versus laminated glass on your windows, you might actually be able to check this. Look at the labels on the corners of your windows, and it should tell you if it's tempered or laminated. If it doesn't, check your car's manual, or you can even call the manufacturer and ask. And even if it looks like your windows are laminated, it's possible that only three of the four side windows are laminated. I read online that sometimes they leave one window tempered. I don't know if that's so you can best of the car or not but just check so that you have that in the back of your mind that if you have to bust out of your car, that you know which window to go out of. And the last thing I wanted to say was one note about the hammer things. AAA did a study and found that the hammers sometimes break, certain ones of them will break when you're trying to hit the glass, even just tempered glass. And they found that the spring-loaded items were more reliable. So basically, Instead of having a fucking hammer you hit it with, it's a little thing that you stick against the window, you push a button, and a little like fucking piston comes out, and it breaks the window. And there's a few advantages to these, and they're about the same price, so we're actually going to be making the swap after researching this episode, but basically, imagine you're underwater already, and you're trying to like swing that hammer in the water, you're not going to be able to get up enough speed and force to actually break the fucking window. But that spring-loaded one is going to work underwater, so it's actually more reliable too. You just want to make sure that once you buy it, you actually test it and make sure that the one you bought has a functional spring loaded like spring. So, what you want to do is actually try it out on like a thick notebook or a piece of wood. If you're trying out the spring loaded mechanism on a notebook, it should leave a hole in the notebook. And if you're trying it out on wood, you should see like an actual indentation in the wood. So, to sum up this whole idea of being on a bridge and you plummet into water, if you're panicking, again, try to take deep breaths. And there's a method that some experts call the sure method that you can kind of like remember in your brain in terms of like what you need to do in what order. So again, that's sure. So S is for staying calm. U is for unbuckling yourself and all passengers that you plan to keep alive, including your pets. Give them a chance if you have time. R is for rolling down the windows or fucking breaking them and busting out of the window somehow. And E is for exiting the vehicle. So just kind of like keep that mnemonic in mind if you're panicking and you're not sure what to do. I mentioned at least once this Mythbusters episode about getting out of a submerged car. And apparently this episode is like ground truth for every article on the entire internet. I swear everything that I saw was like quoting this episode. So if you're looking for like a visualization of what we mean in terms of like the water filling up or there being an air bubble, go check out the episode. It's actually a pretty short clip and I think the actual like official Mythbusters channel has up that like that little section of it. So just go check it out. And there's one other nonfiction show that I wanted to bring up, and this is one of our favorites, but I don't think you can find it streaming anywhere. We found it like on some like bootleg like YouTube channel. it looks like absolute shit, but it's worth it. It's called "Seconds to Disaster," and it basically looks at engineering failures and like buildings and tunnels and bridges, or, like basically anything man-made. And it looks at the moment of disaster, and then it kind of like works backwards through time. Looking at all of, like, the engineering failures, all the safety gates that were, like, missed, all of that shit to kind of, like, understand how a disaster could happen. So, super fucking interesting. And if anyone actually knows how to watch it, like, legitimately all the way through, like, please message us on Instagram because I actually really want to watch this. I did find, I think that there's, like, a successor to it, though. I just found it researching this today. I think it's called, like, When the Big Ones Collapse or When the Big Ones Fail or something. And it's I think it's National Geographic, but it's basically the same thing, where it's like you have the moment of disaster and it works backwards, kind of explaining the engineering. So we might have to look into that one too.
0: In my opinion, one of the more iconic bridge collapse scenes, besides the ones in Lord of the Rings, is in Final Destination 5, of all things. It is a really, really well done CGI sequence that is so carefully orchestrated. The set design is awesome. If you have a chance look up the final destination 5 like green screen just youtube it and it'll show you a side by side comparison of what happens before special effects were put in and then afterwards it is astounding how much better cgi was literally like 7 or 8 years ago as compared to what cgi is like now and in this scene there is a catastrophic bridge collapse due to like supernatural causes because these people were supposed to die And they're riding a bus and that kind of thing. And the way that it's carried out, I think, looks pretty realistic. Like it's a really high up bridge and there's pieces of it falling off. There's like railing that is not completely broken. And obviously, it's completely fictionalized. There's some over the top, like non bridge collapse related deaths. But I think the actual phenomenon of the bridge collapse itself looked relatively realistic to me. People who are, like I said, civil engineers or architects that deal with this kind of thing. You'll probably disagree if you've even seen or heard of this movie, but I'm curious to know like, what were your thoughts on it, for seeing it for the first time, as somebody who is completely unfamiliar with the Final Destination franchise.
1: So, I did not grow up watching these movies. I thought that they were stupid. You tried to show me the first one a while ago, and I was like, what the fuck is this? This is so bad. And then when we were researching this a couple days ago, we were watching that like scene on YouTube. It's fucking awesome it's so good. It's delightfully campy. The actual disaster is pretty fucking realistic. And then we watch the CGI thing afterwards, and it really does, like, it's a surprising amount of it is practical. And I think that's why it looks good, because it blends in with CGI. I think people are just fucking lazy now. But anyway, I am totally fucking sold on the Final Destination movies. And I think once we get this episode finished, I want to, like, want to watch all of them this weekend. I thought it was really, really good. I feel like there's a whole bunch of movies where bridges get destroyed, like disaster movies, like fucking monster movies. We didn't talk about any of those, but there's one movie in particular with a bridge collapse that I do want to bring up, and that's the Silver Bridge Collapse in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and the movie was Mothman Prophecies. I think it was also like a book, and if I don't bring this up, my mom's never going to speak to me again, but basically the movie book combo associated the bridge collapse with Mothman, so when people think about the Silver Bridge collapse. They think Mothman, like somehow Mothman. It's been a while since I saw it, but somehow Mothman was responsible for this, or something weird happened. But the Silver Bridge collapse was a real thing that actually happened. So the Silver Bridge was an i bar suspension bridge built in 1928, and it did collapse in 1967, killing 46 fucking people. Basically, the bridge was a chain of i bars, and one i bar out of like this whole fucking bridge had a defect that was only like a tenth of an inch deep, like literally that fucking small. And that combined with the bridge having like too much weight on it at the time was enough to cause it to collapse and kill 46 people. That's just, it's fucking crazy. I think that's all we've got for bridges this week. Don't forget that we have a website, in the labyrinth of death.com. We've actually got free stickers on there, so check it out. Again, that's for the stickers, in the labyrinth of death.com slash stickers. You can also reach us on Instagram at in the labyrinth of death. Follow us and leave us a review wherever you listen. If you get a chance, we'd really appreciate it.
0: Tune in next week for another new episode of In the Labyrinth of Death. In the meantime, send us your near misses with death or collapsing bridges to inthelabyrinthofdeath at gmail.com.
1: We'll see y'all next week. This podcast is researched and presented by enthusiasts, not experts, and is for entertainment purposes only. None of the content you have heard is meant to be taken as legal, medical, financial, survival, or any other kind of advice. Please consult with actual professionals.